I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Dr. Christopher Perrin, and thank you once again for joining me on this podcast. This is the Cafe Scolet podcast. And with this podcast, I'm going to begin a series of on the topic of monastic learning, what the monastic tradition teaches us about restful learning, scolae, and education in general. So in this podcast, I'm going to introduce monasticism generally with an eye to its contributions to education. It just so happens that monasteries from about 500 AD to about 1400 AD in the the Western part of the world, was the chief way in which human beings were educated. In fact, here's an astounding statistic. How many monasteries do you think there were with attached schools by about 1400 AD throughout Europe and the Mediterranean basin? Give it a guess. Hundreds, perhaps, You might even think thousands? Well, the scholarly estimates range from about 20,000 to 37,000 monasteries with attached schools, almost every one of them with an attached school. There were schools as a part of monasteries. And in fact, it was education in the monastic tradition that made a significant contribution to universities as we know them. For example, if you visit any storied college, you'll find a beautiful quad at the center of campus. And that quad is essentially the cloister. It's a garden in the center of things, the center of learning. And so the monastic architecture is well known. The cloister is a a garden in the center of the monastery in the shape of a square or rectangle with breezeways that attach to the buildings and the classrooms with windows looking in onto that garden which you could walk, where in which you could contemplate, where teachers could take students uh, uh, for a peripatetic class, or where they could sit on the short wall in the breezeway and listen to a lecture or have discussion, or go back into their classrooms, in which there were also windows facing not only inward into the garden, but outward to the surrounding community to that community to which they were called to serve as well. In my view, that kind of quad or garden-centered architecture is perhaps the best tried and true way to design a school. Well, let's do a bit of a survey of monasticism with an eye towards its contributions to education. I'm reminded of what G.K. Chesterton said, and C.S. Lewis in other words, that when we've lost our way, sometimes the best way to go forward is to return home or to go back. How many times 
Have I been on a trip, particularly before the era of GPS, and been unwilling to circle back to where I started before I got lost? I'm one of those who have never really wanted to stop at a gas station for directions. I would just keep going forward. If we are going west and I can see the sun setting in the west, I'd be content to keep traveling down any road as long as it was heading in the general right direction. Well, now GPS has saved me from those particular dilemmas and also brought much more harmony to the conversations with my wife as we travel. But it's always wise to consider the ancient landmarks, to consider the ancient paths that have been so well-traveled, that have served so many for so long, before we embark on some new path. And there is, of course, a place for innovation and new pathways. But innovation is always done best in conversation with past or ancient wisdom. In fact, we read in the monastic tradition a great, about a great reverence for the past, and even a sense that the past is not, well, past. The past continues to live in the present, and into the future. This is just a key human insight about tradition. Tradition is a Latin word. Originally, it's from the Latin uh, verb tradere, which means to hand over, to hand down. It can even mean to surrender. And then the, the noun traditio. So a tradition is something that's been handed down to us that is so valuable that we want to keep it and pass it on to our own children. Now, there are some things that we don't pass down because they don't prove to be profoundly true, good, and beautiful. But most things that have been around for, say, centuries and passed down from one generation to the next have stood the test of time and proven to be wise. So the monastic tradition has an appropriate, I think, reverence and piety for traditional wisdom. We read in Jeremiah 6 about keeping to the ancient paths and not departing from them. And so, going back to Chesterton, he says that really every revolution is in fact a kind of restoration. Uh, the word revolution means to come all the way, in, literally, to move around, not just 180 degrees, but to move uh, a full revolution to 360 degrees, meaning to go forward, there's a sense in which we're going back as well. Well, some would say, you know, well, we can't go back in time. Why would we look to the monastic tradition for educational wisdom in the present? Well, I like how Dorothy Sayers answers that question in her brief essay, The Lost Tools of Learning. It was originally a speech she gave in 1947. She says, well, no, we can't time travel. We don't go back in that sense. But we can go back in the sense of getting direction or even correction, amending our ways based on the proven wisdom and insights of the past. We go back in that sense. Why? Well, because there's some things about being a human being and living in society together that simply don't change. Well, I have a feeling that most of you are already convinced of that. But there may be some who need to think about that more additionally or more deeply. 
Good ideas that are true are evergreen and ever-renewing and continuing. And that would be true of much that's in the monastic tradition. No, we're not going to go back to using wax tablets like they did in the early Middle Ages or using parchment or vellum for our books and notebooks. But there are some practices that are profoundly human that have continued and should continue in modern education and future education. To cite G.K. Chesterton once more, he said that the Middle Ages were not so much an ideal that was tried and found wanting, but found difficult and left untried, meaning the experiment that we might call Christendom is an unfinished temple and a tremendous accomplishment, but not one that was ultimately completed. And will Christendom ever be completed in this life? I think not. But the monastic tradition is a part of what historians have called, and certainly used to call, Christendom, and brings with it a collection of rich practices relating to education and the Christian life in general. So it's my contention that Christian schools and homeschools should recover, recuperate, reappropriate, and emulate some of the leisurely and contemplative practices of monastic education for a 21st century context in order to recover some of the benefits of those practices. So here now is a cursory survey of some of the great monks who were founders of the monastic tradition. Just keep in mind, this is a high-level flyover. We'll start with Anthony the Great, who lived in Egypt from about 251 to 356 AD. He was an Eremitic monk, which means he lived in the desert from the Greek Eremos, which means desert. We get the word hermit from Eremos. He was also called an Anchorite monk, or monks like him were from the Greek anakora, which means to withdraw from a region. Anthony gathered a number of disciples over the years. People would come to him and visit him. He was uh, pretty famous. In fact, uh, writings about him and stories about him reached Augustine. And the stories of Anthony's commitment to Christ, his life of prayer and contemplation, his, his wisdom, so moved Augustine that it became um, one of the prompts that led to Augustine's conversion. So that's Anthony the Great, studied by many. Uh, following him was Pacomius the Great, who lived from about 292 to 348 AD, also in Egypt. He, however, was a Cenobitic monk from the word Cenobium, which means a common life. He lived with other monks in community rather than as a hermit, like St. Anthony. Here's another famous monk, St. Simeon the Stylite. Uh, this means he lived on a stulos, a pillar. He was a stylitic monk. He lived in Syria from 390 to 459 AD. For 49 years, he was on a pillar. This can appear to us as somewhat extreme. And there's something to note about these early monks. There was a kind of, well, extreme commitment to prayer and contemplation. 
even what we would call a kind of fanaticism. And it was often in response to, well, the worldliness they saw all around them, the difficulties of pursuing a life of prayer and contemplation in the midst, say, of persecutions, or in just worldly fatness, we might say, that many of them perceived as impeding their ability to consecrate their lives to prayer and to God. Now, immediately this raises some of the objections that have been raised against monasticism over the years. Isn't this a kind of unhealthy removal and withdrawal from being salt and light in one's community? Well, as we'll see, this isn't for everybody, especially being a a desert hermit. But monasticism evolved into being highly communal, and even the monasteries themselves were greatly in service of their surrounding communities. So, yes, there was a kind of withdrawal, but it was a withdrawal in order to consecrate one to prayer and to service, and yes, even to service of one's neighboring communities. So, there was a a lot of give and take. Uh, We'll see that in the future, there were monastic orders like the Franciscans and the Dominicans, which were traveling orders, uh, very much on the move, itinerant monastic orders. And so monasticism can't be really simplified and reduced to monks living completely alone and in isolation and never engaging their communities. Yes, there were some examples of that. And yes, perhaps we might say there are some who should be consecrated to that for the purpose of prayer, particularly prayer for the church. So I've been privileged to be able to go to Orvieto, Italy for about 10 years now, about once a year on a trip that our company leads. And Orvieto is an ancient city in central Rome. It was the former capital of the Etruscan Empire and the last Etruscan city to fall to the Romans because it's up on a mesa about a thousand feet high. Its its natural defenses made it very hard to overcome. And what is on the rim surrounding that small city of about six or seven thousand in Orvieto is a lot of monasteries, almost a ring of monasteries. And those in Orvieto have called those monasteries a ring of prayer. In other words, one of the things that monks and nuns do is pray for those of us who are not in the monasteries. Their life is free of the kind of worldly occupations that we must be engaged in when we're working and raising families, etc. And so there's more time for prayer. So that's just something to note. It doesn't have to be viewed monasticism as a kind of unhealthy withdrawal. It can be seen as a great service to the surrounding communities. We'll see also that the monasteries were places of well a lot of a lot of labor and industry in terms of cultivation of fruit and orchards uh the brewing of beer even uh the the uh, the creation of books and dissemination of books and libraries 
um, medical practices. Lots of study was done in these monastic schools that actually were of great benefits to the surrounding communities and world. Well, enough of that. On to a couple of other great monastics. So, yes, there were some extremely committed stylites, very few of them. We move next to another exemplar, St. John Cassian, who was in dialogue with St. Pacomius, studied these uh, monks who had gone before him, and wrote down a rule about how monks could live together called the Conferences. He lived and ministered in France from about 360 to 425 A.D. He was a, a Cenobitic monk who lived in community with others and started monasteries. And he was a great influence on another very great monastic and, and a founder of monasteries, St. Benedict. Benedict of Nursia. And boy, Benedict's life is really interesting. You could compare Benedict to a contemporary Boethius who lived in Rome and became a, a council in Rome, uh, the highest office under the emperor, and decided to stay in the city, to stay in public life, to stay in politics. Boethius did. Whereas Benedict, living at about the same time, fled the city of Rome in the midst of his university education there, uh, having been overwhelmed and disgusted by the debauchery in the city and in the surrounding community, he left Rome and went to nearby Subiaco, Subiaca simply to pray. He began to pray, and he did this for a few years. It was during this time of prayer that others came to him and asked him if he would not lead them in a small monastery. He said yes. That first experiment did not go so well, but he learned much. And then he did begin to found monasteries. And we know those today as Benedictine monasteries. He founded 12 of them before he died, including the one on Mount Cassino, which is considered the mother monastery of all of the Benedictine monasteries throughout the world. Benedict has had a tremendous influence on medieval monasticism and therefore on education. He also wrote a rule like Cassian did, the rule of St. Benedict. It's a short little rule, you could probably read it in an hour and a half or so, that describes how wisely and well monks could live together in community in a monastery. And there are applications in that rule for leading good organizations generally, as well as a school, and of course, a monastery. So, now here is a listing of some of the great and more important orders and persons in a very brief overview of monasticism. First, Benedict, living from, say, 480 to 543, and the establishment of Benedictine monasteries. By the way, Benedict is known as the patron saint, not of, say, Italy, but all of Europe. Because by going into that cave in Subiaco and praying, it appears that he not only saved his soul, but saved Europe. 
Keep in mind that Benedict was living during a time when the barbarians had come through the Roman Empire, taken it over, such that it was in a state of disintegration. During these very tumultuous times, Benedict was slowly starting monasteries and monastic schools. And they grew and grew and grew. So, as I said, he lived from about 48, 480 to 543. Perhaps the next great person to mention is Alcuin and Charlemagne. Alcuin being the, the monastic reformer and education reformer called by Charlemagne into the Holy Roman Empire to reform and extend teaching in the Holy Roman Empire. Then we move to about 909 with William of Aquitaine and a donation that he made to help start monasteries uh, in Cluny. And there were some 1,000 monasteries that were started as a part of that Cluniac Reformation and extension of monasticism. Then we can move to, say, 1084 and the start of the Carthusian Order in Chartreuse in France under the leadership of St. Bruno. And then the, the Cistercians in 1094 in another French town, Citeaux, if I said that correctly, under the leadership of St. Bernard, and some 338 monasteries were formed as Cistercian monasteries. And then to the Franciscans under the leadership of St. Francis in 1210, and the Capuchins in 1520 that follow after, uh, follow after the Franciscans, and then the Dominicans in 1215, um, st- starting under the leadership of St. Dominic, almost at the same time as Francis. And then we can move to 1540, under the leadership of Ignatius Loyola, the Jesuit order is formed. And then the Trappists, in 1664, just to give you a very brief overview of some of the major orders in medieval monasticism. Now, as I move towards the end of this podcast, I'd like to just highlight five important aspects of Benedictine monasticism that I think are relevant to education then, today, and tomorrow. The first is work, study, and prayer woven together into kind of harmony. One of the maxims of Benedictine monasticism was ora et labora, work and prayer. Or prayer and work. Ora means prayer, labora means work. These three things were woven together in a kind of harmony. Yes, the Benedictines would pray, say, seven times a day, uh, even waking up, say, at the middle of the night to pray. Now, the prayer services weren't an hour long each time. That you know, middle-of-the-night prayer would be short, maybe 20 minutes or so. But, but this process of praying throughout the 24-hour period is well known and is a way of indicating that the monks indeed were committed to a life of prayer and meditation and contemplation. And that leads us to a second really important aspect of Benedictine monasticism, which is the deep contemplation of scripture and literature. There were times set out through the day and the evening 
for contemplation, silence, and prayer, both corporate and alone. There was time dedicated to memory and copying in the scriptorium, which is where the monks would copy great manuscripts, great literature of the true, the good, and the beautiful, and of course, preeminently, scripture itself. There was the practice of Lectio Divina, which means a kind of divine reading of Scripture, which was a slow, close, contemplative reading of Scripture that involved four stages. The first being Lectio, reading, multiple readings, slow readings. The second being Meditatio or meditation, and then contemplation, and then prayer. In a future podcast, we'll talk about these four movements of the Lectio Divina. They're rich and suggestive not only for the way we can read Scripture, but the way we can read other important great works of literature and poetry. And then there was the practice of keeping a flora legium. And flora legium means a book of flowers. And this was a way of collecting in, you know, well, a notebook that a monk might have, which would be highly treasured because it might be made of parchment or vellum, and that kind of paper was expensive, the monks would collect excerpts of great books and writers into a book that they could keep for ongoing meditation and contemplation and even as a guide to prayer, and a book of flowers, as it were, that would be pressed not only into the the parchment or vellum, but pressed into the tablet of their own hearts. In another podcast, we will talk about the Flora Legium, or the commonplace book, and how it can be of great benefit today. A third element of monasticism that I think enriches education today is the rhythm of monasteries and monastic schools. The rhythm of solitude and community. There's a kind of solitude that's built into monastic practice that, of course, enriches the individual soul. But as it does that, it enriches the community as each person is blessed because of their contemplation and prayer and solitude. And of course, the community, the corporate worship in the monastery, enriches one's private contemplation and prayer or solitude. This is very much needed today in modern education. We don't know how to be alone. We don't understand the benefits of private contemplation, prayer, and meditation that ends up blessing our community. Uh, We're not as comfortable with long stretches of time in private study. A fourth important element of monasticism is rest or scole. No surprise here. By withdrawing from the demands of a vocational life, the monks and nuns were able to enjoy spiritual leisure. And this is much talked about in the monastic literature. How much they did enjoy consecrated, dedicated life of prayer and meditation on scripture and great literature, and how much they enjoyed serving others in the attached school, providing medical services, in doing agricultural work, 
other kinds of works of, of mercy and ministry. But they had the set-apart time for leisurely learning. It was a clear path that was set out for them. It was sometimes called the Royal Road, the Via Regia, that was leading, as it were, to the palace of the king, which in their view was Christ himself. There was a clear curriculum of study. It involved the study of grammar and the great literature that grammar opened up. And, of course, the deep and sustained study of scripture. It involved uh, restful learning with friends in community and also alone in one's private contemplation and prayer. As you can guess, we'll want to talk at some length about the way in which scole or restful learning was present and is present in, monast- in, in monasteries and can inspire us in our homeschools and schools today. We'll be doing that in a future podcast, to be sure. And a final and fifth element that I'd like to draw your attention to from monasticism is the formation of habits of holiness. Spiritual formation itself through a process of what was called ascesis, or spiritual training and discipline. We get the word asceticism from ascesis, or ascesis. It was a, a commitment to habituate oneself through the rule in the monastery to a dedicated life of prayer, contemplation, work, and service. This should characterize what we do in Christian schools and homeschools today. Thinking of education as habitual formation, such that what we do every day slowly forms the character and person that we become, is a very important insight to appropriate now in the 21st century. We have generally lost the idea that education is primarily about human formation. The monastic schools were centered on it. We also see in the emphasis on formation a commitment to humility charity, and hospitality. That one is formed by seeing oneself in the light of the greatness and goodness of Christ himself. The one who is humble in heart and the one who infuses us with humility as we follow after him. And of course, that's done in a service of love or charity. So service out of love to one's brothers that are nearby and to the community that's farther off. Humility, charity, and I'll mention hospitality. To visit a Benedictine monastery is to be welcomed as if you are Christ yourself. If you were to visit a Benedictine monastery today, somehow the abbot or another monk would know that you were coming and would greet you with a pitcher in hand and a towel over an arm and wash your hands and say, this is to welcome you. And you'd be welcomed to the monastery or a meal, given a room, and treated as if you were Christ. That kind of commitment to loving hospitality is so much needed 
in education today? What if our schools were full of humility, charity, and hospitality? Well, there you have it. It's a very quick overview of monasticism and monastic education, highlighting just five important components that can stimulate us to think deeply about how we renew classical Christian education in the 21st century. If you'd like to know a little bit more about this, I do have a a short course on the monastic tradition of classical education on classicalu.com. The first couple of lectures are available free for anybody, so feel free to take a look at those if you would like. In, In the next couple of podcasts, we will begin to look first at the Lectio Divina, that way of doing close, slow reading of Scripture, and ask ourselves how it might be renewed today. Then we'll look at the Flora Legium, that commonplace book that monks would keep, and ask ourselves how that could be employed today to great effect. Thanks once again for listening to the Cafe Scole podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.